0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled "Blessings and Woes." It's based upon the lectionary readings for February seventeenth, two thousand and nineteen. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, sad, and expendable. Woe to you who are rich, full, happy, and popular. This week's gospel in a nutshell: boom. Some context. As Luke tells the story, Jesus has just spent the night alone on the mountainside, praying before he chooses his twelve apostles. As morning dawns, he and the newly called twelve descend from the mountain to find a vast crowd waiting for them. The multitudes have come from everywhere, seeking help. And Jesus, in his element, with power literally pouring off of his garments, heals them all. Then, standing on a level place with the crowd, he tells his would-be disciples what discipleship actually looks like. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, sad, and expendable. Woe to you who are rich, full, happy, and popular. Yep, that's the fabulous good news of the kingdom of God. A world turned upside down. An economy of blessing that sounds ludicrous. A reordering of priority and privilege that the church will find offensive for centuries to come. I'll be honest, I don't know what to do with this stinging lectionary. What I'm tempted to do, of course, is edit Jesus' words and make myself feel better. As in... He didn't really mean poor, did he? Homeless poor? Dressed in rags poor? Slum poor? Or hungry as in literally hungry? Starving for bread? Also, he couldn't have meant sad people as in people drowning in grief and despair. People who weep aloud in ways respectable folks never do in public. Would it be cruel to call them blessed? And surely he wasn't referring to literal expendability. To those unlikable, unpopular, unimportant people I wouldn't even know how to befriend if I tried. Obviously, Jesus was exaggerating, speaking figuratively, kidding, right? I mean, come on. There must be some way I can wiggle out of the woes column and into the blessed column instead, right? Right? Wrong. Unlike Matthew, who softens things a bit by writing poor in spirit instead of poor, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of plain old hungry, Luke keeps Jesus' a servant on the plain, raw, terse, and close to the bone. There's no way around it. As far as Luke's Jesus is concerned, God's favor does not rest on the well-fed, the well-off, and the well-liked. It rests on those who have absolutely nothing to fall back on but God. No credit line, no nest egg, no fan base, no immunity. Nothing. If you want to know where God's heart is, Luke insists. Look to the world's most reviled, wretched, starving, grieving, shamed, and desperate people. They are the fortunate ones. They are the blessed ones on whom God's promise of more and better rests. So, okay... What am I to do with this reading? Wallow in guilt? Romanticize poverty? Avoid happiness? I don't think so. The very fact that Jesus prefaces his hard teaching by alleviating suffering in every way possible suggests that he does not valorize pain and misery for their own sakes. Pain in and of itself is neither holy nor redemptive in the Christian story, and in fact, Jesus' ministry is all about healing, abundance, liberation, and joy. Also, look carefully, his sermon on the plain is not prescriptive. Nowhere in his litany of blessings and woes did Jesus tell his listeners how to behave. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the sermon is not advice at all. It is not even judgment. It is simply the truth about the way things work, pronounced by someone who loves everyone. So I ask the question again, what am I, cozy and comfortable as I am in my healthy, happy, first-world, middle-class life, to do with this gospel reading? How shall I reflect on it, receive it, sit with it? I might begin by admitting that Jesus is right. That is to say, I might come clean about the fact that most of the time, I am not desperate for God. I am not keenly aware of God's active daily intervention in my life. I am not on my knees with need, ache, sorrow, longing, gratitude, or love. After all, why would I be? I have plenty to eat. I live in a comfortable home. I have both health and health insurance. My children are safe. I have access to a vibrant social, intellectual, and recreational life. I am not in dire need of wealth anything. In short, there isn't much in my circumstances that leads me to a sense of urgency about spiritual things. I can go days without talking to God. I can go days without thinking about God. It's very, very easy, embarrassingly easy, for all things deep and divine to become afterthoughts in my life, because God just isn't on my 24-7 radar. This isn't because I'm callous. It's because, as Jesus puts it so wisely in his searing sermon, I'm already full. I've already received my consolation. I'm too busy laughing to notice the healing honest tears might bring. I'm primed in my cozy life to live in the shallows, unaware of the treasures that lie waiting for me in the depths. Most of the time, it just plain doesn't occur to me that I would be lost, utterly and wholly lost without the grace that actually sustains me. I think what Jesus is saying in this gospel is that I have something to learn about discipleship that my life circumstances will not teach me, something to grasp about the beauty, glory, freedom, and power of the Christian life that I will never grasp until God becomes my everything my all, my go-to, my starting place, and my ending place. Something to humbly admit about the limitations of my privilege. Something to recognize about the radical counterintuitiveness of God's priorities and promises. Something to gain from the humility that says, those people I think I'm superior to in every way, they have everything to teach me. Maybe it's time to shut up and pay attention. Is it comfortable to sit in the woes column? No. Might a willingness to do it anyway save my life? Yes. In a beautiful reflection on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, Frederick Buechner writes this, The world says, mind your own business, and Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success, and Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, law and order, and Jesus says, love. The world says get, and Jesus says give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot, and anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy too is laboring less under a cross than under a delusion. This is not prosperity theology. This is not blessing as health, wealth, and happiness. This is a teaching so costly, so soul-rattling, so unpalatable, that most of us will do anything to domesticate or ignore it. Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, sad, and expendable. Why? Because you have everything to look forward to. Because the kingdom of God is yours. Because God is the God of those who have nothing but him. Lord, help me to hear what this is saying. Help me not to squirm away. Help me somehow to sit with woe and find salvation. For books this week, Dan reviews Fashion Climbing, a memoir with photographs by Bill Cunningham. For the last 30 years of his long life, Bill Cunningham bicycled around New York City in his trademark beret, royal blue French worker's jacket and safety vest, in order to photograph the fashions not just of the famous but of everyday people. Yes, he was entirely comfortable on the front row of the catwalks of New York and Paris and at the philanthropic galas at the Met. But the best fashion, he liked to say, is on the street, always has been and always will be. Aficionados of the New York Times will remember his column called On the Street, One week he might feature fanny packs, another week baggy or saggy pants, denim skirts or bell-bottoms. Cunningham never took money or owned a television. He refused all food and drink at galas, lived a monastic life in a microscopic studio until he was evicted, and attended church every Sunday. After he died in 2016, his family discovered the surprise memoir among his papers. Although nobody knows for sure, the book seems to have been written before 1970. The last chronological reference is 1965. So it's a sort of prequel to the documentary film Bill Cunningham, New York, 2010, that covers the last 30 years of his life as a photographer with the New York Times. Cunningham's first memory of his lifelong obsession with fashion was when he was four years old and his mother, quote, beat the hell out of me for parading around their middle-class Catholic home in his sister's dress and threatened every bone in my uninhibited body if I wore girls' clothes again. Nonetheless, despite this lifelong alienation from his family, Quote, I knew my destiny was to create beautiful women and place them in fantastic surroundings. By the time I was twelve, the family was in a state of frenzy over how they could knock this artistic nature out of me. Thank God they failed. Cunningham got his start working in the stockroom as a teenager at the upscale Bonwit Teller department store, and after that he never looked back. Bonwit obtained a scholarship for him to attend Harvard, but he hated school and left after two months. He moved to New York City, where for about 15 years he operated a millinery business and outfitted wealthy women with outrageous hats. Quote, these were truly happy times, he writes. But by about 1965, as the book ends, women had stopped wearing hats, and so he closed the business. After a stormy stint writing for Women's Wear Daily, he had an annoying habit of being brutally honest about fashion. He would eventually join the New York Times. Bill Cunningham was a preternaturally cheerful person. and never had a mind that dwelt on the bad. He was enthusiastic and optimistic and exuded gratitude for all his good fortune to do what he believed in. He never drank alcohol, as he hated the taste and the buzz. He loved flowers and would decorate his dingy hotel rooms in Paris with them. For Cunningham, at its best, fashion was an expression of human joy rather than a means of social climbing or to impress others. He had a remarkably vivid imaginative life. His favorite pastime was people-watching. Cunningham was also a famously private person, and the one disappointment in this book is that we learn almost nothing about his inner life. In fact, he says, after a life in the cutthroat world of fashion, the only way to last is never to let anyone really know you. In that regard, he also succeeded. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews The Cult of Progress. In April of 2018, PBS, in partnership with the BBC, premiered a new nine-part series called Civilizations. Civilizations the theme of which is to examine the formative role of art and the creative imagination in the forging of humanity itself. The one-hour episodes include What Is Art Good For? that I reviewed earlier for JWJ. Other episodes consider Paradise on Earth, Depictions of Nature, God and Art, and How Do We Look, The Human Body in Art. The Cult of Progress began through the familiar characterization of the Enlightenment about its unbridled optimism regarding the power of human reason, freedom, and science to create a better world, in opposition to the medieval inheritance of dogma, superstition, and ecclesial authority. Thus its unshakable belief in progress, and science as a new religion. Today we know at least a little bit better, that those Enlightenment ideals were exported to the non-white, barbarian land with a violence and missionary zeal all its own, with sometimes tragic consequences for those non-Christian and traditional cultures. Later still, the Enlightenment project would devour its own self with industrialization, modernity, cultural decadence, and the violence of mechanized warfare in World War I when this episode ends. And so the narrator, David Olusoga, shows how artists and photographers reflected and challenged this culture of progress. The episode concludes with the consideration of Picasso's daunting La Demoiselle d'Avignon, with the accusatory eyes and the contorted and deconstructed bodies of the prostitutes staring out at the viewer of the painting. All nine episodes of Civilizations are available at the PBS website. And finally, for poetry this week, William Wordsworth's The World is Too Much With Us. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bares her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune it moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, so might I, standing on this pleasant lea, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for February 17th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.